Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Well, welcome everyone to another The Nuclear View. Uh, And uh, if you were thinking you're going to hear Adam, we still have him, well, not on assignment like Curtis said last week. No, instead, this week, Adam decided he's going to take some vacation time. Well deserved, by the way. And I trust He's on a sojourn. Curtis? He's on a sojourn. Yeah, he's on a sojourn. He's identified as a, uh, he's self-identified as a mountain hiker. (laughs) Yeah, well, there you go. Curtis has the inside scoop. I knew he'd fill us in. And uh, we have a very special podcast today. One, we're podcasting off-site. I am out in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I'm working with some folks at the Sandia National Labs, uh, getting some um, some things done out here. And I am with a very special guest, Brian Oliver from Sandia National Labs. Brian, do you want to introduce yourself to the uh, to the guests, we were not on video, so don't even worry don't about the video part. Okay. Go ahead and talk. It's almost all audio. You got it. Well, uh, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, I'm out here uh, supporting, I guess, the the uh, NIDS uh, podcast activities. Uh, I'm a representative at Sandia, director there with uh, oversight of our uh, radiation effects and electrical sciences uh, center and uh, primarily support uh, our nuclear deterrent uh, through the use of our key facilities and activities um, at Sandia. So good. thanks and um, welcome. Yeah, and good, because I, I really want to talk about it because uh, I'm sure a lot of people have gone out and seen the Oppenheimer movie. And if you haven't, you should go out and see it. And a lot of that work and a lot of that, at least I'm not sure the casting was done out here. But the work that they talk about was done out here in New Mexico. And um, a lot of people, you know, see all that going on and saying, well, a long time ago, we were setting off nuclear weapons. We were testing and evaluating. And that was part of what we did. And so that's what we're doing out here. And that must be what you're doing, Brian. And so maybe we could talk about what you actually are doing instead of that these days. Yeah. So um, that's right. Uh, Back in 1992, uh, the U.S. uh, stopped doing underground tests uh, in particular, uh, and yet we still today have to maintain uh, our nuclear stockpile. And for those, uh, I'm I'm sure many people uh, understand and know it, but just to be clear, um, nuclear weapons really have two oversight groups. Uh, The Department of Defense um, is the one that deploys and, uh, ma- and maintains in the field our nuclear weapons. The Department of Energy, for which Sandia National Labs represents, uh, is actually responsible for maintaining and certifying that our nuclear weapons are capable of doing the jobs should uh, we ever find ourselves in a situation where we have to, have to use them. Um, and that by, I should say, I mean, use them physically. Uh, we certainly use them every day from a deterrence standpoint. And so part of our job is to make sure that that deterrence is still viable. And so what we do, and in particular, my group and other centers at Sandia is use facilities, um, uh, both, uh, at Sandia, as well as at some of our sister laboratories in Los Alamos and Lawrence Livermore 
to conduct experiments and uh, studies and science uh, that allows us to certify uh, our weapon systems, even in the absence of underground tests as we used to do in the past. Well, that's great. And, and Brian and I have been working together now for, what, almost 20 years? I would say 20, pretty, 20 years. Yeah. Pretty close to 20 years we've yeah. been working together uh, doing this science stuff. And so I, I want to bring in my other science advisor, Curtis McGiffin, here uh, and uh, see if you have anything that uh, you want to talk to Brian about or, or highlight for Brian. I'm definitely going to be an honorary uh physicist and engineer when I'm done with this one here. <laughs> hey, uh, Brian, it's so glad to ha- I'm so glad to have you here. It's wonderful that you could join us and share your knowledge uh, with us and our listeners. Um, you know, I, I, I want to, you know, from a, a, a policy and strategy uh, mindset, which is where I, my, my bailiwick, where I live in, you know, I think about what you all do here in, in the labs and in the DOE. And you mentioned certifying. And I think this is very important when we're not testing anymore. We don't visibly see mushroom clouds or, or I guess more accurately, feel the rumble under our feet of an underground test. And so it's, it's getting, you know, it's getting harder, uh, if you will, uh, to sort of convince the adversary that, our stuff works. They kind of have to take it on more faith now than, say, back in 1992. Um, and so I think it's really important from a strategy and policy perspective that the certification work that you all do is incredibly important to deterrence because it adds the credibility, the important, the important uh, vitamin C to our nuclear deterrent. Uh, without credibility, you know, the deterrent is, is uh, much less valuable, if, if any. And so I really think your certification, and, and I say you as in, a, as in the labs writ large, uh, and the work that's done to maintain and, 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 uh, the, and sustain and certifying the nuclear uh, weapons are definitely key to that. It is, in, it is um, extremely uh, critical to, uh, to deterrence. So I want to thank you for the, the dedicated work that you all have done in all of those times. And one last comment to Jim uh, with regard to the Oppenheimer movie. Um, our, our listeners can't, can't see you. I can. Uh, I certainly could see you in central casting being right there involved <laughs> as one of those background engineers. You should have tried out for that. Thanks, Curtis. For those of our listeners that have seen me on the uh, video part of our podcast, uh, they may have a different opinion than you do, Curtis, but Thanks for your uh, support. So, Brian, yeah, uh, Curtis talks about how we do a certifying and it might be interesting at least to talk about some of the tools you have in the in the trade able to able to do this and and how that goes about, because you've invested pretty much all your life to this, haven't you? Yeah, uh, absolutely. My my career, I started as a plasma physicist uh, going into the fusion energy business and uh, Sure enough, uh, our, you know, tense radiation sources and things of that nature are germane to, to the problem set here and uh, indeed have dedicated my entire career to this activity. I think probably one of the uh, really outstanding pieces of all of this is that although in the past we did underground tests, we actually also did a lot of experimentation and modeling and simulation to support those tests. And we had capabilities uh, pulse power accelerators, uh, pulse neutron accelerators, um, you know, uh, 
normal environment uh, things like uh, centrifuges, uh, et cetera, that were used to support those activities. Yeah, Brian, we have a really sophisticated audience, and they probably understand what you're saying, pulse power. But Curtis probably doesn't understand what <laughs> okay. you mean. Can you just sort of help help Curtis understand what pulse <laughs> sure. power is? Sure. Uh, pulse power is really the delivery of a lot of energy in a very, very small amount of time and in a small uh, central arena. So sort of like a uh, nuclear weapon. Does, sort right? of like a nuclear weapon does, but on a much smaller case, uh, uh, size scale, of course. We do it locally inside of contained experimental vessels. But quite literally, we charge up a very, what we would you call a battery, they're capacitors instead, but you charge up a large battery uh, over a long period of time, and then we discharge it on very fast time scales, uh, lots and lots of stored energy, compress it from seconds of stored energy down to nanoseconds of stored energy, uh, and, and drive it onto materials and electronics and whatnot in order to create very, very intense uh, radiation environments. Uh, and this is a this is a very unique capability, particularly at Sandia, that we've been invested in and um, making better every year for thirty plus years now, thirty five years. Wow! Yeah, and it's you know you think about it, so you're trying to replicate the awesome power of a nuclear weapon with all any other capability but the weapon itself. But the weapon itself, exactly. Yeah, and to do it in a controlled environment so that we can truly diagnose uh, the responses and the and the activity of materials, electronics, other things like that exposed to those exposed to those environments. Yeah, that's go ahead, Curtis. So well let me ask you this. So for the listeners, um, and of course for my uh, my unsophisticated self here. Um, <laughs> What is the end result of all of this? So, so you do the, the pulse power and the, the radio. I assume you diagnose uh, some ra- radiation hardening uh, uh, mechanisms in which to make our equipment last longer to survive and endure uh, the worst of days. Uh, so how does that carry through? If you find this, uh, I don't know, you make a breakthrough, you, you have a great discovery, you know, how does that work its way into something that's tangible um, that finds its way into the operator's um, hip pocket or in the back of his kit uh, or on an airplane or in a missile silo? Yeah, well, so there, there's really kind of, I would say, two key aspects to what we would call um, the stockpile stewardship program, which is the fundamental program out of DOE for, for assessing our weapon systems. There is what we would call certification of the of present components. So for instance, uh, the nuclear package uh, that say Los Alamos or Livermore would be responsible for, that it's still a viable component, even after it's been sitting on the shelf for many decades, right? These systems are sitting stored uh, many decades pass by, and we have to be able to tell ourselves, hey, do we think this will still work when we ask it to work, when when we send it? And so, yeah. so Brian, let me interrupt. So, so what you're telling me is you'll uh, someone will randomly pull a widget off the shelf uh, at Malmstrom Air Force Base, bring it back to a lab, and irradiate it and test it. Is that what you're telling me? Right. That's exactly right. So that Fantastic. so that's what that's, that's awesome. what we would call the investigation of the aging process. How does something maybe change compared to when it was first uh, instantiated? 
The other side of the coin is that we're in the midst of and have been for a couple, a decade, two decades now what is known as a modernization program, and that is the actual replacement of components with new components, those that are either you know, engineered better or have greater capability than they did in the past. And prior to inserting a new component, we need to run it through its paces that is, expose it to radiation environments or run it through its mechanical environments, thermal cycling, all of those types of things in order to ensure that when we put it in as a new component, that it too will do what it's supposed to do when, call, when and if it's called upon. And that's a very heavy lift and, a, and a, major, a major program of record. And in particular at Sandia Labs, um, uh, we do what is the majority share of what we call the non-nuclear components, that is the firing sets, the, the, um, the uh, tracking uh, mechanisms, uh, the launch, uh, supporting the launch vehicles, et cetera. Uh, and uh, there's a whole slew of things that need to be done and repurposed. It's just like revamping an automobile every few years, right? You got to change out your injector. You got to change out your valves, et cetera. So... You, know, you you mentioned uh, you mentioned yeah. that you do all these things, um, but you're not doing it in a vacuum. You you're working with the other national labs too, right? That's correct. And how much how much interplay do you guys have? Because most people, I, I don't think they realize the structure that there's the, the weapons labs and the engineering lab. How do how do those interplay, and why are they different, or how are they different? Well, they are different in the scope of the things that they look at, but the interplay is, is very, very tight. I mean, uh, in, in general, Sandia plays the role of what you would call system integrator. That is the one who puts, uh, helps put all the pieces together at the end of the day. But the pieces come from very, other sites, uh, ourselves as well as other sites, um, Livermore and or Los Alamos. But it's a very, very tight-knit group uh, of, of laboratory enterprise. And you also have what are known as the production agencies. So Kansas City, for instance, where they produce parts, uh, they have to work closely with all of us as well. Uh, because not only do you have to certify the applicability of a component, you have to certify the process by which it's built in the first place. That's a lot of a lot of pieces, a lot of work. Yeah. Um, that, that is a lot of work. Hey, let me ask this, uh, Brian. How many, so we've done a number of podcasts here recently where we've talked about the workforce and the developing workforce and maybe the lack thereof of a workforce. How many young folks are working with you as you do these things that are, you know, getting an opportunity to garner experience from you um, as you, um, uh, you know, are, you know, perhaps on the uh, second half of your career, yeah. Maybe the third uh, half. <laughs> maybe the third half. Not good with math. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Not good with math. Anyway, uh, you know, uh, we're all a bit seasoned here. And, uh, you know, how how many young folks are, are there watching and helping and working with you to, to be able to fill in when you finally decide that uh, you're going to spend the rest of your days on a beach? Well, actually, it's it's really quite surprising. Um, uh, the Our younger workforce uh, is actually quite strong. In fact, in many regards, we'd almost say it's a little too strong in the sense that um, I think at, the, at Sandia right now, uh, more than 40% have less than five years experience. Now, that's a good story because these are really, really uh, 
you know, great, smart, intelligent people coming in and supporting the laboratories. The problem is we went through a period of time where we weren't filling in with new talent. And of course, people like myself and others are beginning to retire. And we don't feel like we have sufficient time to do the mentoring that's necessary uh, in order to pass uh, the knowledge on. So we're really in looking at and working with um, human resources and other agencies, people who have turnover of young people a lot, the DOD is quite good at this, at trying to understand better how we can quickly, more quickly, pass information from one generation to the next generation uh, um, moving forward. And, um, you know, we're doing a lot of things in, in digital engineering now that we didn't used to do. These are exciting, uh, hot topics. A lot of great, you know, people are getting educated in this. I didn't know anything about digital engineering uh, when I got out of graduate school, but uh, uh, and trying to learn as quickly as I can so that I can support these uh, people as they come in. But there's there really is a lot of great young talent coming our way. And I would say our struggle is being able to rapidly transfer the more seasoned knowledge to the new people in the workforce so that we can continue to make progress. But doesn't that make it a little more exciting on both sides, though? Well, it certainly makes it exciting on my side of the house. It's just amazing. I mean, some of these people are, are, are really just phenomenal. They come up with fantastic ideas. Uh, they've got tool sets at their, at their fingertips, which are much, much better than anything we ever had. And uh, it's really neat to see, uh, to, see them, to see them work these very complex problems in new ways. What kind of- well, Brian, that's certainly, I'm sorry, that's certainly a good news story, and I am glad to hear that. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a, a little step on the limb here and assume that you've probably seen a real test or two in the earlier part of your career, correct? So I have not witnessed a test. You have I not. have not. I have okay. been involved in what are known as subcritical experiments uh, uh, underground, but I've never seen a full critical experiment. I still have okay. in my center... Uh, I still have two people out of a center of 300 people. I have two people who have been uh, witness to uh, or, in fact, worked on and did diagnostics to support uh, uh, a test. OK, well, that's that's interesting. It's just because as that as that experience quickly leaves us. Oh, right, yeah. those, those those stories are, are sort of, you know, it's like when you lose the, the World War II generation, right? right? They're, they're almost all gone now. And there's no way to go back and check that history again. And, um, and so as we see the folks who are now, who are the, you know, the, the last ones to leave who've actually seen a real test can go back and look. And I, and I know that even with all the analysis of the, of the film uh, from the 50s and early 60s, that we're learning so much just from watching the old film. Yeah. Um, and so, um, I, it just fascinates me about those things and how that, how that all plays out and, and how the old sort of fits into the new and, and, uh, and, and it almost carries through without a, without a, without a hitch. Uh, it's just fascinating. Yeah. Brian, we talked a little bit about the interaction you have with the other labs, uh, the, the weapons labs. Um, and I'm always, you know, I, I like working around all three labs, I will say the engineering lab is my favorite to come to, right? <laughs> there we go. I, I'm out here more, I'm out here more often than at the other. Even though we're physicists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. But, yeah, the whole physicist engineer yeah, fight yeah. is still, yeah. going, still on. going on. Still going on. That's right. But, but um, I, I'm curious, you know, you, you guys fall under, you guys fall under the Department of, uh, of Energy, 
okay, through the NNSA. Through right? the NNSA. Okay, right. but how much interaction do you have with the Department of Defense? Because a lot of our audience comes from the Department of Defense, and that interaction, I think, is crucial. Can you talk a little bit about any of the work you do that Yeah, a- absolutely. Well, we're very fortunate here in Albuquerque to have the Air Force Nuclear Weapons Center uh, located on the same site at Kirtland Air Force Base uh, right next door to us. And in fact, uh, we interact uh, routinely both uh, they're using our facilities to do work that's more in the de- Department of Defense side of the house on, on what would be the missiles or the payloads or the delivery systems uh, and our very unique facilities that can, that can assess and look at uh, some very uh, critical uh, environmental effects on, on various uh, um, systems and components. We also have a very, very close relationship with the Defense Threat uh, Nuclear Aid, DTRA, and, um, and formerly the DNA, the Defense Nuclear Agency. Yeah, get mixed right? up from yeah, yeah, old yeah, guys like us and think of it as the DNA. They, yeah. Um, wow. uh, also in, in this arena. And they, they in, the, in the days of underground tests, they were the ones who really ran what were called weapon effects tests, which were tests to consider what the effect of an adversary's weapon would look like uh, on us or on our own weapons if, if there was ever a full-scale engagement. And so since we're also germane to that entire uh, part of the, of the process, we have a very you know, close and intimate relationship with them as well looking forward. And then I would say other areas like the Missile Defense Agency, uh, the Department of the, Na- the, the Navy, of course, uh, uh, is a big part, and the Army. Um, yeah, never and, forget and, the Army, by the yeah, way. Yeah, never forget really the Army. Part here. And in fact, a little bit south of us, one of the great facilities there, the White Sands Missile Range, is a key component and a facility that we utilize routinely uh, to do to do our work. So, yeah, very good, strong relationships with our DoD partners. So, so if you were going to, if, if you're going to highlight what what would excite people to come to Sandia to to be part of your team. What do you what do you think are the more exciting things you do? You you talk just about pulse power in general, but uh, can you describe some of the huge, incredible systems that you manage? I'm every time I talk to Brian, I'm impressed by all the different things that his hands are in on, and then are like one of a kind. And there's like two people in the world that do that metal you do. I mean, it's just incredible when you start finding out the detail that these guys go through. Can you talk a little bit about those things, Brian? Brian, let, let me first correct the record. He's not impressed. He's jealous. He's jealous. Yeah, yeah. As he should be. Yeah, yeah I think uh, so. There really are kind of uh, a couple key pieces that I think really makes the work exciting. One is we're a mix of applied physics and engineering as well as fundamental R&D, uh, uh, you know, research and development, a kind of a 50-50 split uh, across our center in particular. And that also carries with it essentially a 50-50 split between what we do in modeling and simulation space, high-performance computing, large-scale codes that uh, you know, run all the way from generating uh, complex and radiation environments to understanding the response on circuits to understanding the responses on materials. And then the third area is in the operation of these very big facilities. Uh, we have some I mean, uh, second to none world-class facilities. We have what's known as the Hermes Accelerator is the world's uh, largest gamma ray producer, produces uh, gamma rays up to 20 uh, mega electron volt energies in 
20 nanosecond pulses. So these are incredibly short pulsed, very intense uh, gamma sources uh, for studying all types of effects of radiation on materials. Uh, and and not can, just nuclear weapons, And not just right? nuclear yeah. weapons, satellites. Uh, you know, I mean, satellites uh, live in a very harsh environment. People forget that. And uh, we need to understand those harsh environments on, on those things. And in fact, we even do work uh, going back to our partners with the Army. They need to understand how radiation can affect things like tanks and Humvees and how they would work and deploy in the field. So we actually work on, on uh, systems, systems like that as well. We also have uh, other radiation we have uh, access to. It's not in my center. It's in my sister's center uh, um, uh, in another pulse power facility called the Z Machine, which is our which is the world's largest X-ray producer. So uh, it's a huge high current accelerator that can produce X-rays again in the nanosecond time scale uh, to study materials response, electronics response, etc. And then we have pulse. We also have some nuclear facilities. We have pulse neutro, uh, neutron facilities uh, as well, uh, because neutron radiation is different than X rays, which is different than gamma rays. Uh, and then, last but not least, uh, we have probably the world's largest microwave oven uh, for doing e electromagnetic uh, characterizations as well. And so, uh, we really have. And, and you can imagine, it's not just about big facilities, it's incredible suites of diagnostics, uh, interferometry, x-ray diagnostics, uh, fast camera uh, photometry, uh, on and on and on. And uh, these large facilities, these large computer codes to help model the situations and, and analyze them. And then, fun, you know, above all else, we've got just a fantastic core of people, a diverse population of technicians, of of physicists, of engineers, mechanical, electrical, uh, radiation, nuclear. Um, it, it really runs the gamut. It's a, it really is an exciting. I mean, I, it, it really always excites me to know that I get to be uh, a part of this center and, and part of these great people doing all this work. And I would say one of the things you talk about all those uh, diverse uh, backgrounds, et cetera, but I think one of the things that I've always liked working with your center at, uh, throughout these past 20 or so years is that everyone seems to have a strength, an area that they work in, but there's no way they could ever get bored because you you have nuclear engineers who are helping with high performance computing right. and then going out on and, and helping to build an experiment for, for gamma rays to replicate something that was happening in a, a nuclear process in a weapon. And so they have to know a little bit about everything else as well. I don't right. think there's a single member of your group that I've ever you know, interviewed with or talked to, that they just stuck on their one subject. And uh, it's amazing uh, how much uh, diverse, diversity of, of talent you have in any single individual. And that's, a, I think, a really important part of what happens out here. Uh, because nuclear weapons, I mean, face it, they are complex, especially the effects and then trying to get them to, to survive in these very complex environments. But the flip side of that is we have invested as a country we have invested a large amount of funding, but also a large amount of people talent into that to make sure that that deterrent remains viable and a threat so that no one else wants to take us on and keeps us at peace. And it's just amazing how much of that work is done. Yeah, to make that happen. absolutely. I think it's uh, I mean, it's. People tend to write the, the comment that always comes out. You talk to someone from the strategic command or from the Air Force or, 
And uh, you'll say, I'll make a flippant comment like, well, I sure hope we never have to use our nuclear weapons because I really do hope we never have to use them. And the response almost always is, oh, we're using them every single day because they are maintaining the peace uh, for the nation, which is which is a which is a tribute to just the people who are working on these things day in and day out. And I and I take that and and I I take that to heart. But when I come out here, I always tell people and Curtis heard me when we talked about having you as a guest here. And I'm going to say it for our audience. I I always run into people saying, well, we're no longer testing our nuclear weapons. My answer is we test them every day. day. I've been in your facilities where we're (laughs) testing a variety of things with with great fidelity and, and great control over the environment. So we understand what's going on because. Let's face it, when a nuclear bomb goes off underground, that's a chaotic environment, I believe. Now, I've <laughs> yeah. never been there. Yeah. Even though Curtis thinks I'm that old, if you listen to last week's podcast, <laughs> he thought I knew Oppenheimer as a kid or something like that. So. <laughs> yeah, I thought you brought him coffee. Yeah. Uh, all right. Hey, look, I got two questions I want to get uh, give, uh, ask you, Scott, uh, Brian, I'm sorry, uh, before we before we roll out of here. And, uh, and these are sort of off-the-wall questions that I think our fans – our fans, our listeners might be interested in, Brian. And that is, one, why is the largest X-ray machine called the Z-Machine? Oh. And the other, and the other is, what is the coolest, or maybe two or three of the coolest items that were brought off a shelf and brought into your lab that you got to shoot full of radiation and test whether or not it was still working? You might not be able to answer that yeah. last one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Okay. Well, so the first one is a little bit add. complicated. But the accelerator that we use, the Z-Machine, as it's called, drives a very, very intense current, 26 mega amps of current, essentially through, at the end of the day, a very thin column of plasma. You can think of it as a wire that's been completely vaporized. And it drives that current in the axial direction, which is the Z-direction. By convention. Uh, By convention. And when that current is driven in the axial direction, it creates a magnetic field that is in the azimuthal direction, in a circular direction. And that magnetic field is so intense, it compresses the material to very, very high pressures, pressures uh, gigapascals, and and drives... uh, I should say, radi- when it compresses it, it heats it, and when it heats it, it drives radiation, and that's how the radiation is generated, creating this big bath uh, burst of X-rays. And Brian, I, I hope no one in our audience oh, was listening nice. while they were driving that was a physicist, because they would have taken her right hand out and pointed her thumb in the air and right. started doing the right hand rule. I didn't want them to get in an accident, <laughs> so I hope we didn't cause any of that. All right, your second yeah. question. <laughs> so the second question. Uh, there have been a few items uh, over the years, but I would say that the most impressive item is uh, having a tank out in front of the Hermes accelerator being irradiated by the Hermes accelerator to see whether or not we disrupt any of the electronics. And uh, we've knocked out a few in our day. <laughs> Well, let me say this. I, I, I'm glad that you picked a tank. This is fascinating. Uh, I, I've done. I've, I've spoken numerous times with Army audiences, and I've I've tried to remind them how important it is to be able to have your stuff ready to fight on a nuclear battlefield. Yeah. Um, because the ability to do that uh, is a deterrent in its in and of itself. Because if 
we're afraid to work on the to, to fight on a nuclear battlefield or and I say afraid because our equipment doesn't prepare for it anymore because we kind of thought it was never going to happen again. Uh, then all the adversary has to do is just threaten to right. you know deradiate the battlefield, and then they've got escalation dominance over us in the battlefield, and you know the war is sort of how do you fight the war then? So uh, I think it's incredibly important that our equipment be able to work our you know our tanks and vehicles and helicopters and so forth in these sorts of situations in these environments because the adversary will likely try to deny us. Yep. The ability to do that, as we may end up having to do that to them. Uh, so anyway, fascinating. Uh, uh, thank you for those uh, two sort of my those were sort of my random questions that were bugging me all day um, as I was preparing for this. Um, yeah, good stuff. Uh, very very excited to have you here. Would you please do us a favor? And I'm gonna Jim wrap us up here as we have come to that time. Uh, and and do let your team know. Uh, that from a NIDS perspective, and I just want to echo what Jim was saying, it is incredibly important for them to understand that what they do, they do in the name of peace. And that it is about the, the, the stability and the peace that a, that a good, strong nuclear deterrent brings that they are participating in. And, uh, and yes, they are engaged in weapons that are being used every day. But deployed and employed are two yes. different terms. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and right. so we want to make sure they understand that. And I hope that when they go home for their Thanksgiving dinners and sit across from those crazy uncles who don't understand why they work with these nasty, crazy, scary nuclear weapons, that they can communicate to them, hey, I'm just trying to keep the just peace. Just trying to keep the peace. Yeah, That's right. very much. Good. Well, thank you, Brian, again. Thank you. I really Fun. appreciate you uh, taking the time to do this, to get any time from a busy manager over at Sandia National Labs is a special treat. And for me, uh, with a friend of mine that I've been working with for so long, to sit down and just have a chat about what you've been doing on our show is really exciting. And, uh, and so, as always... Uh, I'm Jim Petrosky, so I'll echo what Ad Adam always says. I'm Jim Petrosky, as always, and this is the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, and we want you to always think deterrence. Thank you for listening to this week's The Nuclear View. We hope you found it engaging and valuable. The Nuclear View is released each Wednesday and is a production of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies a 501c3 organization. We are dependent upon donations to provide our podcasts. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and of our national deterrence. We occasionally answer questions from our valued listeners. If you wish to send us questions on a topic, please send your email to asknids at thinkdeterrence.com. That's Ask NIDS, one word, the at symbol, and thinkdeterrence, one word, dot com. If you enjoyed this show, check out our other weekly podcast, Nuclear Knowledge. You can catch all of our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com under the Deterrence Podcast tab. We thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear view where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to always think deterrence.